Well, good morning, Chillicothe Bible Church. I'm thankful that the porch pirate, though he tore open the box, did not get my mic cable, and it works this week. So, um, praise God for that. Thanksgiving has come and gone now, but there's still every day a whole lot to praise and thank God for. Amen? And one of the things I am really thankful for right now is being able to have all of my kids home under my roof. That is a fantastic blessing, and I really enjoy it. We're having a whole bunch of fun. We've, we've had uh, all of Karen's family in um, for the last several days, and then last night we went, got to all just, just the horns, go to the movies together and have fun doing that. And, uh, and we're going to wrap that up today as Sarah goes back to Taylor, but, but in just a few weeks, I'll get to do this again. And uh, one of the things we'll do over the Christmas holiday to celebrate one of my favorite Christmas traditions, and we will watch all three of the extended edition versions of The Lord of the Rings, right? And I will get to enjoy that and, uh, and, and geek out with my daughter, uh, who loves them as much as me. And uh, all of those movies are classics, but uh, probably my favorite scene in all of them is the Battle of Helm's Deep. And if you've not seen the movie, picture this. You've got a bunch of farmers and tradesmen and a handful of trained warriors standing on the walls of a stronghold built into the walls of a box canyon. And coming against them are 10,000 tall, strong, ugly goblins. Orcs. Uruk high they call themselves, and they are bred for the sole purpose of wiping out this civilization that stands on the walls. There is no way out. Trained warrior or not, you're going to fight, and it is a fight to the death. You must stand strong against the assault of the enemy, and so they do. The men of Rohan stand for two whole days. And then on the morning of the third day, having fought through the rain, through the darkness, of two whole days of onslaught by the orcs, comes the long-awaited white rider on a white horse to deliver them all. And he comes and he brings about the total defeat of all of the enemy. Does any of this sound familiar? of people doing battle against impossible odds, waiting for the coming of a rider on a white horse. I love that scene. It's great. It's fantastic. If you've not seen that movie, you need to watch it. It's in the two towers. It's great stuff, right? Uh, This morning, we're looking at the end of the book of Ephesians, and it includes this famous section about the armor of God and spiritual warfare. And what this section is, is a call to arms. It's a call to join the fight, to stand strong against the enemy's assault with all of his mighty forces until the great day comes, and with it, the rider on the white horse, whose name is the Word of God, who will return and utterly defeat every last member of the enemy. And even though Jesus' final victory is guaranteed, your victory in your daily warfare is not. And if you want to win, you have to know your enemy, you have to get equipped for battle, and you have to make your stand 
against the enemy. And this passage equips you to do that very thing. So I want to look at it uh, with you. And if you're able, please stand with me as I read the Word of God. Um, this is Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to look at the whole rest of the, of the passage here, verses 10 through 24. This is what the Word of God says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything. I am sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we do want to love you and love our Lord Jesus with love that is incorruptible. And Father, our prayer is that we would be equipped for the battle with the weapons that you have provided and that we would stand against the enemy's onslaught in an evil day. Father, help us to understand these things clearly and having understood them, to put them into practice. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's let's be seated. Well, verses one through th- or I'm sorry, verses ten through thirteen rather uh, are about standing against Satan's power. But before we get to them, it's very helpful to note a couple things about the context in which these verses appear. Number one, you'll remember that the Ephesian church is founded out of a background where everyone in Ephesus. Uh, who is a Gentile, is devoted to the worship of the goddess Artemis. Uh, The temple to Artemis at Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And with that, there was a tremendous trade in uh, in idols and and, uh, representations of the goddess Artemis. And uh, she was was the goddess of the hunt, the goddess of the moon, the goddess of... Uh, uh, virginity and fertility because of the cycle of the moon connected to that. And and the worship centered around her was gross idolatry in all of its, in every way you can think of. And the people of Ephesus 
when they when the gospel began to go through that place, it transformed the culture to such an extent that the guys who made idols began to lose money. And even more than that, a whole bunch of the Christians were into the people who became Christians had formerly been into witchcraft, and they burned a bunch of their sorcery books in the process of coming to faith in Jesus. Now, I will tell you that if you're into that kind of thing, if that's your background, if you're into witchcraft, uh, some of this kind of stuff involving the demonic realm is going to have deep application to you. But it's interesting uh, to have that as the context in which this is written, but also consider this. It seems like this section of Scripture kind of pops out of nowhere, right? We've been talking about how the what the gospel is and all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. We've looked at that for three chapters, and then we looked at how the the gospel applies to daily life, and we looked at that for the last uh, two and a half chapters. And then we come to this section where we've just looked at we've looked at marriage, we looked at parenting and child and, and being a child and how that looks, and then we looked at how the gospel applies to the workplace and so forth. And then we like, up pops this section finally about spiritual warfare. Isn't that weird? It's like it comes out of nowhere. Like, where did this come from? And I think it is because it doesn't come out of nowhere. The reality is, is that how you respond to the gospel, how you put the gospel into practice in the daily grind of daily life, in your job, in your home, with your spouse, is an act of spiritual warfare. You may not have ever considered that. But you are either serving Satan in your job or serving the Lord in your job as a boss or as an employee. How you respond to your parents if you're a child under their authority is an act of spiritual warfare. How you treat your spouse is an act of spiritual warfare. And either you serve the Lord with your mouth, with your behavior, with your attitude toward your spouse, or you serve Satan. That gets a little convicting, doesn't it? And if we're going to win these battles, and because it isn't always a grand cosmic battle between you and a very obvious demonic presence. I've been a pastor for 20 years. I've confronted a demon uh, that was pestering someone precisely one time in that 20 years. So this, is not a, this isn't an everyday occurrence. It's not been an every, everyday occurrence in my life. It probably won't be an everyday occurrence in yours either. But you know what is an everyday occurrence? The need to love my wife like Jesus loves the church. The need to uh, not provoke my children to anger, but to help them to grow in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. That's an everyday occurrence. And by the way, it's an everyday struggle. And this is also spiritual warfare. And if you're going to win in these battles, because this is where Satan likes to fight, is up close and personal. In the daily events, the daily relationships, the daily things that don't look real obvious. 
Let's look at verse 10. The text begins, finally. And that's a word that draws a conclusion. The realm where spiritual warfare is fought is not always on a grand scale. It's in the daily grind. And Paul's encouragement in these verses to people saved out of this kind of amazing background that these people have, of being worshipers of idols, of being involved in witchcrafts, is to stand against Satan in the daily grind of daily life. And the command that begins this section is, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. And that's a strong reminder that Christ's strength is essential for our victory. We don't win spiritual victories by ourselves, let alone uh, left to ourselves all alone. We are weak and we are sinful and we are prone to fall into sin when we are tempted by virtually anything at all. But in Christ, we are strong and His strength gives us strength enough to win. So, so the command here, be strong. This is part of getting equipped. You've got to recognize that your strength will not get the job done. You're not going to win the daily battles against Satan and his temptations to respond in a sinful way to the people closest to you without the strength of Christ equipping you. Verse 1 also goes on to tell us to put on, uh, I mean verse 11 rather, tells us to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And this explains further how we gain Jesus' strength for spiritual victory. Just as a soldier needs certain equipment, depending on who his enemy is, we have a God uh, who has provided us with equipment to be able to withstand Satan's assault based on who our enemy is. And notice it's a defensive action that we're to take. We are to put on armor. Armor is not offensive equipment. It's defensive equipment. It's protective of you. And four times in this passage, we're told to stand against, verse 11, to withstand, verse 13, to stand firm. That's verse 13 again. Uh, stand therefore, verse 14. The idea is that you hold your ground, the ground that God has already given you, that He has already taken for us in Christ, that we have to defend the position that we have been assigned. Remember those guys on the wall? What do they have to do? Here comes the enemy. I have to stand my ground. I have to hold the position on the wall that I have been assigned. And the enemy assault may come, but it's not coming over this section of the wall where I stand with my sword and my shield. Amen? I have to stand right there. And we are under constant daily attack from Satan in every part of our lives. Satan has many creative plans in, in the works at all times to defeat us by making us fall into sin, by making us descend into discouragement as a result, and to discredit, therefore, the gospel in our own hearts and before the world. Because what happens when we fall into sin? We go, ah. Oh, 
I guess I can't really do it. I guess maybe I'm not even a Christian. I don't even know, right? Other people watch our watch our fall into sin and they, they go, I don't know about that. The gospel is really true. How come it doesn't make any more difference in their life? Right? That's the idea. To discredit the gospel in your own heart and before the world. And he would like nothing better than to keep us enslaved to sin and keep us reaping its consequences and to show by what he does to defeat us that the gospel is powerless to transform. But that isn't true. The gospel is not powerless to transform. And we have to hold our ground by Jesus' power. Verse 12 adds to our understanding of the enemy. It says that our battle is not against people. It's not against even entities that we can see. It's not a physical fight, one with worldly weapons like guns and bayonets and ballot boxes and political parties and tanks and whatever else we can lay to hand. The battle is spiritual. And it's up close and personal. There's a word here in your text that if you look at it closely, it says, we do not wrestle. The word wrestle. Now, I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a former D1 wrestler like Pastor Josh. Okay. But I, I, I did used to wrestle um, once upon a time. I still like it. I still think it's fun, especially if you win. It's really fun. If you don't, it's kind of humiliating. But, <laughs> but in any case, um, but this word is the idea of hand-to-hand combat. This isn't, this isn't like the kind of combat that, that, uh, that Lonnie was involved in where he had a howitzer team where you kind of lob your missile from like 20 miles, right? <laughs> it's not that kind of deal. It's right up in the foxhole with you. It's you win or you die. It's up close and personal. Our fight is not against an enemy that we can even see. It's against the whole of the demonic realm and it is a life and death struggle against an enemy that is devoted to your destruction by sin and to the continued enslavement of the world to its power. Now I won't go into all the various terms or the demonic hierarchy here, but it is sufficient to understand that Satan's troops are well organized, that their power extends over the whole sin-stained world that is out, out of that We have been rescued by grace through faith in Christ. We have been delivered, as Colossians says. We have been uh, brought from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. We've been redeemed out of this world, but the entire world is otherwise controlled by Satan. In fact, one one of the words here is the word cosmokratos. It means world ruler against the world rulers of of this entire planet. You want to know why the world is as messed up as it is? Part of the answer is sin. Another part of the world is demonic activity, much of which goes unseen, but you can see its effects. And because the battle is raging right now, 
and that we are in a life and death struggle against cosmic evil forces, we are told to take up. Literally, the Greek word here is grab. Like if you're a firefighter and the bell goes off, what do you do? You don't gingerly walk over and kind of, you know, gently put on your boots. No, you grab your gear because the situation is urgent. And it says grab the whole armor of God that you can stand strong in Christ in an evil day. And in case anybody has not noticed, we do live in an evil day. Amen? We live in an evil day. So do we need this? Yes. This is real and victory today and tomorrow and every day until Jesus returns is dependent on clearly seeing life as it really is and fighting with the weapons that Jesus provides. And so I want to look at the equipment that Jesus provides uh, through His almighty power in verses 14 to 18. First thing we need to know about our armor is that it is God's own equipment. Uh, lots of people have noted the similarity between the, the equipment that Paul describes and that of the kind of Roman soldier that Paul was chained to as he wrote this letter. But a lot of people miss that this armor is very similar to what God Himself describes Himself as wearing in victory in Isaiah chapter 59. And so our gear is battle-tested. One of my other favorite movies called The Ghost in the Darkness about the guy who went and hunted down the Savo man-eating lions that killed 120 people over the course of a year. You can see him up in the Field Museum in, uh, in Chicago. Those two lions are, are mounted there. But it's a great movie. And there's one of the characters is about to go into stalking these two lions that are about to eat him. And when he gets up close to them, his gun doesn't go off. And the guy who's with him is like, where did you get that gun? Oh, I borrowed it. He's like, you never go into battle with an untested weapon. And these, who has tested these out? This is the Lord's own armor. This is the best kind of battle-tested armor you can get. This is battle-hardened. And ours belongs to God, and He is the almighty warrior who has already won the ultimate victory over Satan in the demonic realm while wearing it, and He is giving it to us. And so the first item we have to fasten on is the belt of truth. Now most people think of a belt like this. It's something external that is, goes around your pants to hold them up. Um, but that's not the actual belt that's being described here. It's what, we, it's what uh, the, the, the biblical term literally means girdle. Okay? It's what you would, it's, what, it's, an, it's part of your undergarments, actually. It was the thing that was close to your body that held your undergarment close to you so that you could fight well. And so you read in Scripture as an example, it says, gird up your loins. Right, And this is part of that. This is a belt that you tie around your underpants, essentially, to keep everything in place uh, while you went into battle so that your, everything wouldn't be falling down around you. Uh, you know, this was a day before Hanes and Fruit of the Loom would come along, right? So you needed, you needed something to belt that together. And that's what this is. 
And so the idea is, is that, the, that your spiritual life is in the same way dependent on God's truth. And that which is closest to you has to be God's truth. Satan loves to lie to us about God and what is really true and what is good in life and how to gain it. And so he lies to us and he tells us that God is withholding good things from us. And he's been doing that all the way back to the garden. Do you remember? What's he tell the woman? He says, well, God knows that if you eat the fruit, you'll get this good thing, but he doesn't want you to have. Right? And Satan does that same thing with all kinds of stuff down to this very day. Well, the reason God forbids that is because He, he knows that He'll give you some good blessing that He doesn't want you to have. He lies and He lies and He lies and He lies. And He tells us that God is withholding good things from us and if we would just sinfully pursue those things as He encourages us to do, then we would get the life that is really life through sex or money or relationships or power or independence from God in a million other ways. But the truth is, God sets us free to love Him and to enjoy life truly when we believe in Christ. And belief in and pursuit of Satan's lies will only enslave us to sin and death. And so we've got to have the truth buckled around us and hold it close. The second part of our armor is also in verse 14, which is the breastplate of righteousness. When you believe in Christ, you become a recipient of Christ's righteousness. You make the greatest swap in the history of the world. You know this? You trade your busted, broke down, unrighteous, sinful life. You trade Jesus for His righteousness. You say, Jesus, will you trade me everything that I am for everything that you are? And he says, yes. To my everlasting surprise and shock, right? We get the righteousness of Jesus credited to us. That is the gospel. That we swap our unrighteousness for Jesus' righteousness. And He gives it to us. And He puts it on us. And we are declared righteous in God's sight. And we need to remember that we possess that as a permanent status. That we are righteous before God. Why? Because Satan loves to keep record of our sins and to remind us of them. His favorite thing to tell us, especially when we fail, is you're a hypocrite. You cannot possibly be God's child. You are unworthy and you are a vile sinner. The serpent hisses these things to us every time that we fall and even when we are walking faithfully with God. And let me be clear, the power of those things is that they are all true. I am unworthy to be called a child of God. I am a vile sinner. I do not deserve to be called God's child. Amen? And neither do you. They are all true. But I wear the breastplate of righteousness that is not my own. I have received the righteousness of God in Christ by faith. 
by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, I wear that which is not my own, the righteousness of Christ. And these things protect me. I possess a holiness before God that covers over my sinful heart. Amen? And so I can avoid all the temptations that Satan lays out toward religion and toward all the kinds of efforts that it lays out of gaining righteousness by my own effort. I don't have to gain righteousness. Why? Because I already have it. It's already been given to me through faith in Christ by grace. Now, verse 15, we see the shoes equipped with the readiness given by the gospel of peace. I want you to picture combat boots here. These are vital. They enable you to stand on uncertain and unstable ground. They are peace with God that you and I possess through faith in the gospel. And that status can never be taken away. And therefore it grants us peace with, uh, not only with God, but in our own hearts daily. And so we don't need to search for something to give our life meaning or to find, uh, find peace in some activity or some possession, some person. We have peace with God. And that reality enables us to stand against the temptations of Satan to pursue peace in any other way. Because those temptations are real. Amen? We all think, oh, you know, we get to the end of a hard day and we think, I need a drink, right? What are we pursuing? Peace? Well, it's been a long week. I need to like zone out and watch TV. What am I doing? Pursuing peace. I need to get a girlfriend. I need to get a boyfriend. I need to... I need a different wife, a different husband, a different job, a different car, a different house. What am I doing? I'm pursuing, I'm chasing contentment. If only I lived in a different state than Illinois, well then I'll be really happy. Guess what? Guess what? When you move there, wherever there is, you will still be there. Hate to break that bad news to you. Okay, if you won't have peace here, you won't have it there either. Because you take yourself along. And the person who is not at peace looks you in the mirror every morning. But you have peace with God. And so you don't have to chase it. Peace is already yours through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 16, we're instru instructed about the shield of faith. Now, now, there's all kinds of different shields that you, you see in movies or in pictures or whatever. This is not like the little, you know, the little buckler shield, you know, that goes around your arm like you'd see in a gladiator con contest. This is a two foot by four and a half foot shield, okay? Something you can get behind. It is a big shield. And the Roman army carried these. They, had a, they, they were made of wood and they were curved uh, with the idea that you could get behind it 
but they had a rim of steel all the way around and a big steel boss in the middle and they were covered underneath the steel with leather and they would soak the leather in water. And the idea behind that would be that if the enemy shot flaming arrows at you, you could stand next to your buddy and you would all lock shields together and up over your head and all of the flaming darts of the enemy would be extinguished in the shield. But it also is interesting. A shield was much more effective if you had a guy next to you. Because you could protect your left side with your shield. What protects your right side? The shield of the guy next to you. What protects his right side? The shield of the guy next to him. And on down the line, right? And so the shield of faith is not simply something you possess individually. It's something that you deploy collectively. That you participate in as you participate in Christian community. Satan loves to assault us with temptation to sin and to unbelief, temptation to abandon the faith and to follow him instead of pursuing the things that we can see and touch and taste and smell and hear. But faith gives us eyes to see the truth and to hold our ground against him. That's what the shield of faith is. It's eyes to see what is really true. Because there's a reality in our world that what we can what we can experience with our senses feels real to us. But it isn't real, ultimately. Everything that you can see and hear and touch and smell and taste, all those things are temporary. The things which are unseen are actually eternal. And we need the shield of faith to be able to see clearly and to extinguish the temptations that come our way. In verse 17, we learn about the helmet of salvation which protects our life completely. Your salvation, whether you know it or not, your salvation can never, never, never be lost. If you have put your trust in Jesus Christ in a genuine way, your salvation is your permanent possession. So despite the temptation of Satan, despite the power of sin, just like a helmet completely protects your most vital organ, your head, your salvation saves you completely and enables you to withstand every one of Satan's assaults against you. And finally, verses 17 and 18 introduce us to our sword, the Word of God, and to prayer at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. These are our counterattack. We don't merely stand and take it. We also get to deal it out. And that's a good thing, right? We have to hold our ground, but we get to fight off the enemy. How do we fight? Well, whenever Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, how did he answer? He answered with the Word of God. In fact, he answered every single attack of Satan with, out of one book of the Old Testament. You know which one? Deuteronomy. 
How many of y'all could stand against Satan on your, based on your knowledge of Deuteronomy? <laughs> right? But Jesus could do it. He knew the Word of God. He was the Word of God. Embodied in a person. But He knew God's Word. And just as Jesus did, we also have Jesus' own power to do. To stand against Satan's attack with the Word of God. And so when Satan offers you a temptation, for example, to sleep with your girlfriend or your boyfriend, what do you have to answer? You could say, in the beginning, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined unto his wife, and then the two will become one flesh. You could go there. You could go to Matthew chapter 5 and go, the pure in heart will see God. You could go uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and you could say to yourself, remember, the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. You, you could, when you are tempted to pursue making money to the exclusion of all other goals in life, you could say, you say, what does it profit a man to gain the entire world and lose his own soul? The Word of God contains these kinds of things. When there's a person at work who's hitting on you and says, you know, nobody has to know. You could call up Proverbs where it says, her steps lead down to death, and she makes her bed in the grave. Flee sexual immorality, right? These things are in your Scripture. And those who know their Bible are able, not necessarily will, but they're able if they make use of it in an appropriate way as it's applied to stand against Satan's temptation. And on top of that, we also have access to God directly in prayer. You see that? It says praying at all times, in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. That in other words, at any time, you can call in reinforcements. You know, I've never been in the military. My Crohn's disease kept me out. Um, probably to the benefit of, of, of both halves of that equation. Um, but in any case... Uh, I was never in the military, but I wanted to go uh, to West Point, go infantry, and you know, be a uh, be a, one of those pointy end of the stick kind of guys, right? But what those guys love when they're really in the midst of a hot mess, when the firefight is going strong, what do they want to do? Call in an airstrike, right? And so they call in reinforcements to fly over and drop flaming stuff on top of the enemy, right? And, and what you're able to do, what I'm able to do, is exactly that very thing. 
to call upon God the Holy Spirit, to call upon the angelic realm through the Holy Spirit to your aid. You know that God actually has angels of His own? He does. And He makes them ministering spirits to take care of you and I. They're not to be worshipped, but they are there for our aid, for our support, for our help in our time of need, just as the Holy Spirit is. When we pray, we call on divine reinforcements from every kind of painful trial and temptation and situation and sickness. And even in good circumstances, we can call on the Lord. And God is faithful to answer, to bring God's heavenly cavalry to our aid. Is that not an amazing promise? And so Paul then applies that. And he says, pray making supplication with all perseverance for all the saints. In other words, pray for one another. Because we all need that kind of support and help. And he says, and also, verse 19, for me, that words may be given to me in the opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the arm this this last section verses 19 to 24 is the armor of God applied to life that as the gospel advances as fellowship deepens as God's blessing comes that we are to put this stuff into practice. If you look at verse 18 Paul is asking them to pray for all the saints. Why? Because they all need prayer. And it's striking a blow against Satan to pray for one another. And he continues in verse 19 and asks him to pray specifically for him that he might boldly proclaim the gospel. Why might he need that prayer? Well, let me see. Let's think about it. If you were literally chained up to a Roman guard awaiting trial for life, what would you be tempted to do? To shut up, right? I would be. Let's see here. If I keep proclaiming that Jesus is sovereign even over the emperor in Rome, I might get my head chopped off for the result, which is fact what happened. Right? But if I just go quiet, maybe everybody, everything will come out in the wash and I'll be fine. And get out of here. And so he says, pray for boldness that I might proclaim the gospel as I ought to. And by the way, is that a temptation for us? Just to go super quiet into stealth mode on our Christianity and not let anybody know where we stand or who we stand with or what side we're on rather than boldly proclaim the gospel. Because after all, it's a lot less hassle. Right? Nobody ever lost friends over not proclaiming the gospel. Nobody ever lost their job or got banned on Facebook for not making a big deal about Jesus. But do we need to make a big deal about Jesus? Yes. Because He is the hope of the world. All right. Victory also includes deepening fellowship like we see in verses 21 and 22 where Paul is sending 
Pastor Tychicus with this letter as his disciple to help them grow in Christ, to help them build relationships between them all, because we aren't solitary. Despite what the advertisements may tell you, there's no such thing as an army of one. That doesn't work, right? By definition, that's not an army. That's a vigilante, right? There is no army of one. We are God's army. We win together as we bond together, as we stand side by side with one another. And finally, victory results in God's blessing. You see verses 23 and 24 there. This is, this is Paul's announcement of God's blessing. I'm going to pray those verses over us here at the end. But that brings us to the end of our study of the book of Ephesians. But also the point where we need to put into practice what we have been learning all the way through. Men and women, we are at war. We are not at war against other people. If people are unbelievers, they are not our enemies. They are victims and slaves of the enemy. We are at war with Satan and with his minions and their weapons of lies and discouragement and temptation and sin and apostasy and unfaithfulness. But we defeat them as we cling to Christ and what He has accomplished for us in the cross. And we keep fighting well until Jesus comes back. We hold on to the faith that we've received. We keep fighting. We don't give up. We recognize that while Satan and the demonic realm are mighty, that Jesus Christ is the Almighty. And so we don't abandon Jesus for some lesser relationship, some shiny object, some ultimately less fulfilling pleasure than knowing and serving and being loved with the everlasting love of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we stand against these things by adhering to the truth, by receiving Jesus' righteousness, by enjoying our peace with God, by believing in His promises by faith, defeating sin and temptation by the Word of God, and overcoming trials and suffering and sin and even death itself by all kinds of prayers at all times for one another so that the gospel advances, so that our fellowship with one another deepens, and so that we all experience God's blessing. Amen? So stand. Stand strong in the strength of Jesus Christ. Stand in an evil day. Hold on to what you have been taught. By the way, the faith that your grandma taught you is still true. It's still true. Even if no one else believes it, even if everyone among your peers mocks it, it is still true. If you go to prison for it, if you're chained to a guard for it, it's still true. If you die for it, still true. So put it into practice in your daily life, in your home, your marriage, your job, your inner thoughts, your life. Fight the good fight of the faith 
until the rider on the white horse appears. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, uh, we thank You that You have given us this call to action to grab the weapons that You Yourself have worn and defeat the enemy that You Yourself have already ultimately defeated, but against whom we have daily battles until Jesus returns. Father, help us to stand strong. Help us to stand in an evil day and to do what is right, to think what is right, to defend our ground. Not with our own weapons, not with our own intellect, our own brilliance, our own belligerence, but with the strength that Jesus provides and the weapons that He Himself has worn. Father, help us to hold fast and see the gospel advance and to see our fellowship as the body of Christ deepen and to see and experience your blessing as we rely on your power to accomplish what we ourselves are powerless to accomplish. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.